a couple of things. Uh, one is that if you bring a main dish next week, it's got to be halal. I think he said it, but just to be really clear, um, the people that we're loving, the refugees that we're loving, uh, they only eat halal. It's very important to them. And so that means it's important to us. So if you're going to bring a main dish, that's fantastic. Uh, there are a bunch of halal places lining the block outside of Lincoln Park. And so maybe stop there or, you know, maybe call in and say, I'm, I'm going to go get that. So you, you can do it that way. Really, you can contribute any way you want, even if it's just a fruit. You bring a fruit. That's good. We love you. We're grateful for your fruit. All right? Uh, maybe you want to show up and do seven things. You want to be a part of eight games. We love you. Sign up for eight games. Just sign up for something, anything. This, this is one of the tenets of our, our outreach is that we want everybody to be able to contribute in some way, shape, or form. We just want you in. Again, if it is one grape, praise the Lord for the grape, okay? But just contribute, sign up, populate that sign-up sheet, or we will make phone calls to your house. I don't know when we got your number, but we got your number somehow. They're data mining folks these days. We can track you down and make a phone call to your house and figure out how come you didn't sign up for something, okay? Uh, so that's next week. Uh, and and uh, next week will be as follows. We're going to have a little bit of a message preaching in Mark, and, and we're going to do some worship, and we're going to have someone come by and teach us some cultural appropriation stuff. It's going to be amazing. And then we're going to scoot out of here and just do it. So we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to be about it. And that's what we want to do for the gospel. We want to talk about the gospel, and then we want to be about the gospel. It's that simple, okay? Hey, pray with me as we get into the message this week. God, we love you. Uh, we welcome you in this place. We trust your presence in this place. We trust that you want to teach us something through your word. We trust that you want to magnify um, something in the scriptures that is going to speak directly to our hearts and our current condition. Everybody is in a different current condition, and they need your word to speak to them. And we believe that your, your presence is real, your gospel is real, uh, you're here today, you love us today, and you want to teach us something today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Hey, we're going to teach the Bible today. Uh, for us, teaching the Bible is a closed-hand issue. It's not a negotiable. We're not going to teach you the top ten things about something else, although my wife and I, uh, in two weeks, are actually going to do a marriage sermon, the top ten things we learned about courting and marriage because it is our tenth anniversary. Right? Hello. Hello. That's more than most of y'all. So I... Y'all have some young folks up in here. So, uh, so we are going to stand up here together. We're going to preach together. Uh, my wife is a wonderful preacher, and so she's going to stand up here next to me, and we're just going to alternate. And so that's going to be that. Other than that, we teach the Bible all year round. Those things will be grounded in the Scriptures. But we teach the Bible all year round because the culture is changing and moving and shaping and molding and changing its mind on pretty much every single topic known to man. That's what America is doing right now. We are changing our mind on everything. We're setting new rules and new principles, but there is a God who never changes. There is a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he puts all of his love, all of his commands in his word, and he teaches us how to live. He's the same God who was there, Psalm 139, to number the hairs on our head, right, to grow us in our mother womb, mother's womb, and, he, and he's going to be there at the end to establish a new heaven and a new earth. One of his names is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, because he is always there. He does not change. His, his tenets, his principles, his love, 
will not change. And so we want to stand on that. We don't want to stand with the culture as they change and shape with every side of the aisle and they change what they eat and what they do and what they, what's important and what's good and what's bad. They change on everything. But for us, we're going to stay the same on the Word of God. And so that's why we teach the Bible. Uh, knowing that we're in Mark 6 today. If you want to turn there with me, Mark 6. Mark 6.14 to be specific. Two important characters are going to come out right out the get. It's kind of a depressing Sunday. Someone gets beheaded. Uh, but God's going to teach us something. He teaches us something even when someone's head is leaving. That was weird. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. All right, so our author, John Mark, we call him Mark. John Mark gives us the two most important historical figures in this passage. The first one is John the Baptist. If you don't know who John the Baptist is, he's, he's Jesus' cousin. He was the one prophesied about to prepare the way for Jesus. He's in the womb at the same time that Jesus is in the womb. They're in the womb in the same room. Didn't mean to rhyme it like that. But John, <laughs> someone said bars. Uh, but, but John the Baptist does like a Luigi, a Holy Spirit Luigi from Mario inside of Elizabeth's belly, inside of Elizabeth's womb, while Jesus comes in. So he's anointed with the Holy Spirit from the beginning to carry on God's work, and he does it. He's killing it. He lives in the wilderness. He eats locusts and honey, and he wears linen PJs, and he baptizes a ton of people. So he's doing it, and, and now he's in jail, uh, and, and the ending is actually given away. The other guy here is King Herod, but his name is actually Herod Antipas. We think that John Mark is actually making fun of him here. Because he wanted the name king, but was not given to it, Augustus prevented him from being named king. So, we're going to get into it in a bit here. There's a bunch of Herods and Herodiases. All right, let me just break this down. One dude, all right, Herod the Great, had ten wives. Not as much as Solomon, but he, was, he had a lot of them, okay? And he has a bunch of sons, and they're all named Herod. All right, and the women are named Herodias. So, it's about to get confusing. They did not catch the millennial vibe yet where we have to name our kids something so unique that if some other kid has the same name, we throw up a little bit, and we go down to the courthouse, and we change the name of the kid. We're like, no, we can't have that. Okay, they, they did not have that back in the day. They have Herod and then whatever follows. So Herod Agrippa, one of his brothers, actually gets the name king from Emperor Gaius. Herodias, again, I realize it's terrible. Herodias, Herod Antipas's wife, is like, hold up. How come he gets the name king? And so they start a petition. And this petition is actually what gets them exiled from office. This is the type of family that we're dealing with. This is John the Baptist, and this is Herod Antipas. This family is well known for being prideful, holding grudges, and having childish leadership. Verse 16, before I get there, let me just say, the ending is already given away. A couple weeks ago, I was watching a United States soccer game. I taped it because there was a rain delay. So I taped it and wanted to watch it the next day. I slept and twitched until 10.30 a.m. And then while I was watching it, across the ticker, while I was watching it in, 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 in relayed time, across the ticker on the bottom came the live score. This is what happens here. We're watching it in real time. He gives away the ending. John the Baptist is beheaded. Why? Verse 17 
For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, brother's, uh, Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In other words, it's incest. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. That escalated, right? He actually likes him. He respects that he has this godliness inside of him. The people like him. He's a little bit fearful, like, hey, yo, the people like him. I don't want to kill him. And so Herod actually likes John, and then all of a sudden he's beheading John. That's what we call escalation, right? Like Will Ferrell said, man, that escalated. Like it escalated all of a sudden. And I want to study that escalation, right? Like let's just switch gears for a minute, and then we'll cul-de-sac back around. Um, I don't know how many of you, and you can raise your hand, you can do this proud. How many of you watch soap operas? Soap operas. Nobody, okay. There are people that watch soap operas, okay, realizing that none of them are in this room, or you're just fearful to go, yeah, I'm home at that hour, and I watch. But, you know, people work different shifts, and some people are into this, and they've been going on for years. Like decades, these things are still going on, and you turn it on, you're like, that's the same guy from when I was growing up. And, and, and everybody, in like every tongue and every tribe watches these things. My mother-in-law watches it uh, in Tagalog, all right? And it's the same type of, this is my theory, it's the power of escalation, right? It just escalates all of a sudden. And same in Tagalog, same in, Latin, in the Latin ones, the, the, the ones in Spanish, and same with the ones in, Amer- in English. Like, it just straight up escalates. In every scene, there's a slapping. Like, I think when they're, like, training these folks, they're like, hey, if you forget your line, just slap somebody. <laughs> just look them in the eye, just real deep, and then pow, just slap them. It's going to be great. That's what soap operas are about. It's about the power of escalation. I was in my barbershop. My barbershop is Dominican. They watch these things all day long. And some gal slapped some guy. And I'm like, what happened there? Because I don't understand Spanish. And he's like, well, the mom stole the father's car. And the father was actually intimate with somebody else. And he had a son who was intimate with somebody else who stole the car back. And so she slapped him. I'm like, what? It's the power of escalation. Like how it gets from point A to point B so fast is really what keeps people, like this scripture rivals any soap opera with the power of escalation. John the Baptist is a powerful, good guy. He's a good guy. He's just baptizing folks. He's just eating honey and, and, and insects. Nothing wrong with that. John the Baptist is a good guy. Most people thought he was actually the second coming of Elijah, that he was the one promised. Some people thought he was just a a fantastic prophet, like the prophets of old, right? Jesus actually says about him in Matthew 11 that that among men born of women, which is, you know, all of them, among, among men born of women, he's the greatest. He wins. Like, in Jesus' mind, if it is a competition, dude won. There's Moses. I mean, there's all sorts of people throughout... But he's like, among men born of women, John the Baptist did it. Trophy. And he goes from that to being beheaded in seconds in this passage by this corrupt family. Like, like, like what happened here? How, how did it get from John rebuking the family? That's what he does for incest, which is fair. 
he's, he's saying, look, you're going to set the tone for everybody if you get your incest on as a royal family. He's saying, I, I rebuke that. And he goes from, it goes from that to him being beheaded uh, in the rest of this passage. Here's where I'm going today. Sin escalates. If you take notes, sin escalates. More importantly and more specifically, sin unaddressed by the gospel of Jesus escalates. It hops on an escalator and goes in one direction. In other words, we go from John the Baptist being an amazing man to being beheaded. In another term, we go from Jesus, just loving folks, just healing folks, just turning water into wine for folks. I mean, that gets you some, that gets you some likable points. It goes from that to Jesus being on a cross and being crucified. We as a nation go from a nation of immigrants to a nation who, who hates immigrants. You see the escalation? I mean, we're all immigrants. Kind of crazy. My, my initial uh, ancestor here, his name was Jonathan Thornton. He was an indentured servant. He came uh, fleeing religious persecution, and he helped plant a church here in America, one of the first churches in America. Pretty sick, huh? I mean, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's amazing. True story. I'm, I'm born of immigrants, amazing immigrants. I, I have one person that was here, uh, a Blackfoot Indian who was here, uh, so that's where you get the ethnic ambiguity. You're like, what, what are you? That's where that dark kind of complexion comes in. Everything else, immigrants. From, from, we're a nation of immigrants. So how do we go from that to where we're at now? Which is why we're doing a part party, right? How do we get from here to there? How do we get from being a, a, a nation that united at some point to being this divided, uh, murderous mess that we are now, this slanderous mess that we are now? It's because sin escalates. Sin escalates. Watch James lay it out practically. If you go to the next slide for me. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And, when, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James starts out here. He's like, it starts out with, I want that. I want that. If it's not yours to be had, and you don't commit that to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm not opposed to have that. That's not mine. Can you help me out here? Can you bring me repentance? Can I, can I repent in front of you? Can you give me strength? Can you give me accountability? If you don't commit it to the gospel of Jesus, receive his forgiveness, then it conceives, just like birth. And then it's a natural flow. You going from asking for that, wanting for that, to, to I'm getting that, to you getting it, to that thing having you. So you having sin goes from you having sin to sin having you. And all of a sudden, you're experiencing eternal death. That's the natural flow of sin. Sin escalates without the gospel. Right? You have to think about the sin that's in your life right now that is kind of going through puberty. Like sin, unaddressed by the gospel, goes through this nasty bout of puberty where it gets a squeaky voice and hairy ears and it gets a driver's license and it just starts to drive you into eternal death. That's what happens. In other words, addiction where this thing is your idol and you're worshiping this thing, you need this thing, you desire this thing, you have to have this thing. If you don't have this thing, you're not okay. And this is where your death starts. This is the natural flow and the natural, natural progress of sin in your life. Your desire becomes a chase. Your chase becomes sin in action. And you start to love that sin and it starts to take over your heart or your marriage or your relationships or whatever. And, and it starts to bring forth death in your life. I count here... Five unaddressed sins that kill a prophet. That escalate to the point where we kill a prophet. That's, that's what I count here. 
And I want to just have an honest morning. I believe that deep and wide growth is available for you in Jesus Christ. Like, you can look back at yourself in three years. Remember, you know how you look back at yourself like, ooh, what kind of decision was that? You can look back at yourself in three years and go, man, God has done something inside of me. Not in a prideful way, but like God has done everything inside of me. Look at the person I was. Look what I became. All because, look, the gospel has growth for you. But it's through something simple. And I believe that most followers, followers of Jesus have stunted growth because their sin is going through puberty and their honesty is not. Y'all hearing me? Their sin is going through puberty, is, is getting a driver's license, but their honesty, their repentance, their confession is not going through puberty at all, and therefore their growth is stunted. All because we have forgot about a simple gospel. Here's a simple gospel. We all sin all the time. Every single one of us in this room. We're around sin all the time. And Jesus says, actually through Paul in Romans, that we get to be dead to that sin. That sin does not have to grow branches of addiction and shame in our life, but we can put it to death with Jesus on the cross. He forgives that sin, and now we get to grow in him through repentance and resurrection. That's what Jesus says about sin. But we have to actually confess, we have to actually repent, and we have to actually turn to Jesus. And we have a problem with that. We have a problem in our generation of actually turning to Jesus and identifying that, hey, we need to be honest. So I need to identify today. Here's the title of the message. I want to identify the five sins that could kill a prophet. The five sins that could kill a prophet. Now, I don't really believe that we're going to kill a prophet. I don't believe that any of us are in danger today of killing a prophet. Okay, so that's good. Good news. What I am nervous about is that we don't see that we have these same sins. And these same sins will escalate in our lives if we are not having an honest morning, if we don't repent, if we don't confess, if we don't give these same exact sins to God. I, I, I think that we will not have any growth in Jesus and we won't have freedom. Look, we seem to be a generation that thinks we're special. Y'all with me? I think we're Captain Special Pants. We think our sin doesn't stink. And instead of confessing our sin, we just turn it around, we airbrush it, we rename it, and then we move on. We are not special. There is nothing special about it. The only thing special about us is that God is deeply in love with us. He calls His son, He calls His daughter, and He gives us the tools to not stun our growth, but to stunt the sin that is rising up in our life. That's what makes us special. Otherwise, we are not special. We are not entitled to anything. We are entitled to death. But Jesus says, I got a way out. You're my son. You're my daughter. I got a way out. So we got to admit this morning, we're not special. For some reason, it's, it's, it's our gen and I'm part of it. It's like, you know what, that's not really sin. Let's just spin it. Let's put the spin doctor on that thing. Let's airbrush that sin, and we'll be fine. We got to confess. We got to be an honest family. That's why we, we always call ourselves uh, a hot church, humble, open, teachable. Let's do that this morning as we study the five sins that could kill a prophet. Verse 21, but an opportunity came. An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Let me back up for a minute. Um, I, I want you to know that this is, this is a prequel. Okay, think of your favorite franchise. My favorite franchise is Jurassic Park. 
okay? People are going to be like, well, Justin, nobody else likes Jurassic Park like that. Well, I do. And it makes me even ex more excited when you say that. Like when everybody was doing that face app thing, I'm like, I'm not going to do it just because everybody else is doing it. That makes me feel good about myself. So I love Jurassic Park, and I don't care who knows it. But they don't have a prequel. My favorite prequel is Dark Knight Rises. I mean, come on. That was an amazing franchise and an amazing movie. And if Christian Bale is available, if I just so DM him and he wants to get some froyo and maybe do some, you know, some sit-ups together, I'll be okay with that if he's, if he's not. I really like that, man. So anyways, so that, that's a prequel. What a prequel is is a stated set of events, and then it works you up to that prequel, right? It, it, or that, that actual stated set of events. That's what a prequel does. So it states the events and says, okay, here's how we got here. This is what happens. So uh, John Mark tells you, this is what happens. John the Baptist is beheaded. Here's how we got here. This is where we pick it up. Back to verse 21. Let me read that again. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. All right? So the first thing that we're going to talk about, uh, next, next slide, is the sin of access. The sin of access. Herod, we believe, is living in access. Josephus puts him at this glorious location on a mountain uh, with a palace and a prison, uh, and, and, and Josephus, uh, an ancient scholar, calls it luxurious. But that's not where it begins here, uh, or where it ends here. Pagan parties were birthday parties. So birthday parties were not like, hey, let's get a one-year-old, let's get some balloons. They were actually pagan parties. Religious folks would not take part in pagan parties. Uh, there would be alcohol. There would it'd be famous for, for dancing and all sorts of things that happen after the alcohol kicks in, right? So we can assume that this is kind of excessive partying. Uh, also, he's, he's promising in an excessive way. He does not have half the kingdom. He's not a king. He's just a Herod. He does not have half the kingdom to give away. So he's making excessive promises. I think this is also a way we don't name it. Now, we cannot prove this. We don't know that, that, that this girl is dancing in any other way. We don't, think it, we don't know that it's sexual. But for me, in his character history, all right, and the fact that this is a stag party, mom's outside, the fact that this is a stag party, and what we know about birthday parties, it just doesn't seem like he's giving away half his kingdom for the Macarena. Again, we don't know this for sure, all right, but it, it just doesn't seem like it because it seems like a scene from a bad movie. Like, it just, it just doesn't seem good. So he's living in access. His access, again, is what kills him in the end. Because he wants what he does not have. Remember, he, he wants the title king. He does not have it, but he wants something not appropriate for him. And, and this is what I'm going to say about your, your access. The access of your life is going to create a spill. The access of your life is going to create a spill. Don't, don't just think radiant, polarizing spill, like I'm, I'm, I'm buying a private jet. Don't, don't let yourself get caught up in that. Let yourself get caught up in the subtleties of access. And what I'm telling you is your access is going to create a spill in your life. That's what access is. It's over the appropriate amount. Where are you living with over the appropriate amount? Could it be in the way that you talk? Lots of folks, you know, something happens to them, and they're like, my life is ending. And the mechanic's like, it's just a flat tire. It's excessive. I have no friends. And all your friends are like, what do I not count as a human? Right? 
the community around you, do they not, do they not count? And we get really excessive with our language. Some of us do this intention. Anytime we're, we're in tension with anybody, we just start to punish them, don't we? We start to punish them with the most grandiose statements, uh, and, and, and we're, we're walking out, and I'm getting in the car, and I'm never coming back, and we're getting the D word, and this is what we do in our marriages, and we wonder why our marriages have unhealthy communication, right? We just use excessive language. And we come back and then get the baby and the binky. All right, now I'm leaving. You know, it's like we just use excessive tension-filled languages because we're trying to punish folks. Some of you guys laugh because you're like, that's totally me. Right? That's excessive. Some of us make excessive promises. We're signer up for everything or none of those are words. It doesn't matter. We sign up for everything. And then we get mad at everybody around us because we're like, we're overworked. You're overworking me. God's overworking me. You're overworking me. When all the meanwhile, it was because you made excessive promises. Do you make excessive promises? Remember, Herod didn't have half the kingdom to give away. Neither do you. So are you making oaths? Remember, don't, this doesn't have to be the radiant polarizing sin of lust or drunkenness or drunken parties. This can be the subtle sins, the subtle access of you telling your spouse, I'm not talking to you for three days. Of you giving your friend the silent treatment. Of you at work walking around the cubicle because you don't want to address that person, you want to avoid that person. You don't want to address what's going on and you're in their lives, you, you want to avoid them. Uh, sometimes we like, we'll, we'll, create, uh, we'll create an event and we'll create an event in such a way that we know our other friend does not want to go to it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I know we'll go bowling because Sandy hates it. So, huh, right? We, these, are, these are subtle, right? They're subtle. But these are subtle, subtle ways to know that you are living in access. You're, 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 you're punishing people. You're holding a grudge. Look, here's what I found. Here's what I found. If you can get something under control in one area of your life, if you can unlock self-control in one area of your life, like this, is why, this is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, there's self-control, and if you unlock that in one area of your life, you unlock it in other areas of your life. For me recently, it's been food. I moved to this city. The most amazing food is here. And there's no time and no money to go signing up for 300 hours a month to do some aerobics or something. We ain't got that. So for me, I'm losing it. I'm losing self-control in this area. I'm eating fried foods like crazy. I went to Wendy's, and I sat in my car, and I went, what just happened to me? Because I used to have self-control. So I asked God to help me. I asked my wife to help me, and I started to get this back. And then I realized that unlocked self-control and, and, and moderation in other areas of my life. I started playing my guitar by myself, playing my guitar more. And I started to read more instead of be on my phone as much. Flex your self-control muscle in the Holy Spirit and watch God unlock other areas of self-control for you. It's, it's important to not live in excess. Uh, this is the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. He's mostly talking about food and drink and, and other things and, and the way he uses the Sabbath. He's like, I can do all things, 
I can take, take a shot of Jack Daniels. It's lawful. It's all right. But is it helpful? Probably not. Look, look what he says next. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So when something gets to the, part, part, uh, to the point of ownership over my life, that's when I need to step in and go, yo, I need the gospel. I need Jesus to rescue me. I need Jesus' forgiveness. This thing is getting out of control. This thing is birthing death in my life, and I need to reverse the cycle through the death of Jesus on a cross and realizing that he forgives me, he loves me, there's no shame. I just need to get accountability, and I need to reverse this thing. The sin of access. Next one, back to the script. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And he said, the head of John the Baptist. Again, escalation. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once uh, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. All right, let's go to Herodias real quick. She has a couple big sins. Uh, the first one uh, is the sin of the grudge. She's holding a grudge, verse 19. Holding a grudge. Uh, we won't put verse 19 up there, but, but, but just trust me on this one. That grudge, in turn, ends up in murder because the power of escalation. She doesn't want someone to rebuke her, right? So she, because she was rebuked, starts to go, I'm going to hold a grudge against this person. I love the Greek word for grudge here. It's echo. What it means is to hold in or to be ensnared. So typically we think when we're holding a grudge, we're ensnaring somebody else, but we are just ensnaring ourselves. Crazy, right? The definition of the word is to be ensnared by something. So you think, I'm going to punish her. I'm going to punish him, but really you're just punishing yourself. It's kind of ridiculous in theory if you think about it. In theory, if you think about it, you're walking up to somebody and you're like, <laughs> I'm making you hold this. It's a, it's a big weight, and I'm putting this on you because I'm holding this grudge. And the other person is like, actually, you're holding it. I'm chilling. Right? You're walking up like, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm going to punish you with silence. And you're the one losing sleep over it. You're the one holding it. And they're like, I'm ch I slept really well last night. Had some dreams. It was really good. Watched some Netflix. It was great. That, 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 that's what this is. In, in a bubble, you think I'm holding a grudge against somebody else, and, and they're going to be ensnared, and I'm going to punish them. And all the meanwhile, you, in theory, are being punished. Not only is it ridiculous in theory, but it also makes no sense as a follower of Jesus. There is no excuse as a follower of Jesus to hold a grudge against somebody. It's right time, while we were still sinners, came and died for us. In other words, Jesus washed, washed all of your dirty laundry, so why is your hamper full of everybody else's dirty laundry? Jesus washed all of your dirty laundry, so why do you have everybody else's dirty laundry sitting in your hamper, stinking up your house? It's kind of the headliner of our faith. You know, grace, the unmerited gift, the unearned gift, this gift that we did nothing to deserve while we were still sinners. Jesus dies for us, calls us son, calls us daughter. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together, but he dies for us on the cross, and he leaves it there. He conquers death, resurrects from the dead, and now we get to live free in him, and now you want to use that freedom to hold a grudge and ensnare yourself? Makes no sense. The other day, I'm talking about one of my family members, and I'm like, oh, snap, I'm holding a grudge. I don't even know it. I'm bringing up stuff when I was eight. I thought I was good. 
Again, don't think about these huge grudges where you're like, oh, we got a family rivalry with somebody else or that person in high school who chucked you in the river or something. Don't, don't think about the big polarizing experiences. I never got chucked in the river. You guys are like, did you guys ever get chucked in the river? No, no, no. Don't think about those big polarizing radiant, radiant experiences. Think about the small subtleties. Think about you not answering someone's phone call because you just don't feel like dealing with them for a whole week. Think about that. Who are you holding a grudge against? The gospel says, go find that person. Figure out a way to forgive them. That's what the gospel says. Who are you holding a grudge against? Because you're really holding it against yourself. Next one, the sin of no rebuke. The sin of no rebuke. Uh, This whole thing, again, starts all the way back in verse 18. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Next slide. The sin of no rebuke, right? That's what this is. She will not be rebuked. I will not be rebuked by some John the Baptist guy who's, who's baptizing people. If I want to have some incest in my life, I'm going to have some incest. That's what's going on here. And I think we're the same way. I think we could really make fun of Herodias here, or we can go, you know what? We somehow became, like we talked about from the get, a generation who has no sin. Do you notice that? Nobody has a sin. Whatever anybody does is all good. There's a famous psychologist right now that's talking about divorce. And what they're saying is what we need to do is just airbrush it, say it differently, make it something positive. Because then it's not going to hurt us as much as it hurts us now. This is what we use across the board. Now let me just say something. If you're divorced, God is deeply in love with you. He wants to change your life. He wants to be there for you. Uh, He wants to walk you through it. He wants to hold your hand. You are forgiven. Let's just lay that out there first of all. But it is not what God wants. It is a sin. We can't airbrush it. We can't gloss over it. The only time he okays it is if there's adultery. That's the only time he okays it. Otherwise, he's like, no, this is bad for you. It's bad for your life. You stood before me and you made a covenant in front of God and what God has joined together, let not man separate. So we can't airbrush it. We can't just talk around and say, we just need to talk about this differently. And then it won't become a sin anymore. That's the number one reason for poverty. It's the number one reason for poverty. This is what we want. It's going to ruin your life. People always think, if I get divorced, I'm just going to walk. That thing is like an ugly tail, a burdensome tail that follows you financially, it follows your kids, it follows your life, it's, it's not good, and, and God wants to protect us from it. That's why he creates the covenant and beauty of marriage, but, but we got someone coming in, we're like, we just got to say it different. We just got to airbrush it, it's all good, no, it's not good. When we sin, let's accept it, because Jesus forgives us, so let's bring it to the cross and say, Jesus, will you forgive me? Let's not airbrush it. This woman here is not okay with rebuke, and she's going to end a prideful mess. Because she receives no rebuke, they're going to end up exiled. And this is your trajectory. If you won't receive rebuke from anybody, from friends, uh, from the scriptures, from, from, from God himself, if you won't receive rebuke from anybody, this is your trajectory. Last, last two. Verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. 
And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in, in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Fantastic. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Two more here. Numbers four and number five. Uh, they're going to go together. Uh, and that's cowardice uh, and people's opinions over God. Number four is cowardice. The dude knows what's right. He knows what's right. He, he's even sorry in the passage. I, I know I'm not supposed to kill this prophet. This is actually a good guy. He actually is intriguing to me because he has the power of God, and yet I'm going to kill him anyway because of my cowardice and because of my people-pleasing over God. He's afraid of this woman. He's afraid of this woman, and he's afraid of his guests. So a dude's head ends up on a platter. Here are the number four and number five sins that could kill a prophet. Cowardice and people being greater than God. And here's my question. Where did all the OGs go? Huh? Where did all the original gangsters go? Here's what an original gangster says. I'm going to do what's right in God's eyes, and whatever happens, happens. If I lose my job, if I lose some friends, if I lose whatever. That's what an original gangster says. Where did all the OGs go? We are so concerned with what everybody says. It makes us cowards. We live in fear. Here, sin escalates so, so powerfully that we end up killing somebody. You can find that sin in pretty much every major murder in history. Cowardice and people's opinions being greater than God. You can trace your sin. Whatever sin you got right now, you're like, oh man, I really screwed up last week. Trace it back. Here's where you can trace it back. Probably to cowardice, fear, or you can trace it back to, I really want that person to like me, or I want to please that person over my God. Where did all the OGs go? God has put something inside of you that is strong, that he favors, that he loves, that he's going to teach. And why don't you figure out, where am I, where am I being cowardice? in my life right now? Is it at my job? In my family? In my friendships? Let's end with this. And we're going to take communion. Which one of these sins is really taking over your life right now? Is it cowardice? Is it people-pleasing? Is it access? Can nobody rebuke you? Which one of these sins are, are, are taking over? Now's the time to repent with your family in, in community in front of Jesus with his body and his blood. Repent. That's it. There's no, there's no magic formula. Just, just come forward, receive the elements, and repent. And tell Jesus, I'm sorry. I need your help. I need your self-control. I need your love. Look, the gospel is two Ps. It's positional and it's progressive, meaning it already happened. Jesus died for you. The war is won. He already resurrected. You can resurrect in him. And it's progressive. Every single day, you can take more hold of your identity in Jesus, positional and progressive. Why don't you stand with me? Stand with me and close your eyes.
I believe that we're a prideful generation. And I believe the answer to all this mess is humbling ourselves before Jesus. Pray with me. God, would you humble us? I know that is a dangerous prayer. But we rather go down to our knees than go down to death in sin. I know this is an unpopular message. I know there's nothing glorious or and it may not even seem encouraging. But God, I am encouraged that you died for every single one of the sins that are arising in our hearts in this room. I pray that as we take your communion, you would deeply convict us and deeply free us. <laughs> Bring freedom to this room. Set the captives free. Set the humble captives free. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. We're going to start out with communion. Uh, they're going to play softly. Uh, there are two locations. Um, Ryan, could you come up here and could you hold these two, these two things? Um, Steve, could you grab those two things and just kind of stand in the middle of this aisle here um, so that we can have two stations? This is a take and dip scenario, my friends. It is a take and dip scenario. Uh, try not to grab the, the cup out of his hand and start sipping on it. It's going to be awkward for everybody. Just have yourself a take and dip, okay? Um, and then go back to your seat. And I'm going to walk you through this. And we're going to walk through this together as a family. Okay, so someone be a leader. Come, up, come on up here and grab, uh, and then just start some lines. Okay, I'm gonna, as you guys are kind of wrapping up here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you something about repentance. Uh, repentance is just turning back to Jesus. And there's such thing as faux penance. There's repentance and there's faux penance. F-A-U-X, meaning fake. Uh, and so at my last church, the elders and I used to get together and we used to hold each other accountable. So we would go around the room and we would talk about where we're sinning. 
and there was a lot of faux penance in the room. We realized it about four or five months in. Because some, some dude would be like, okay, it's my turn. Um, I'm struggling with lust. Uh, and some days I'm winning, and some days I'm losing. And then he'd be done. That's a faux penance. That's not real repentance. That's a little bit. That's you dipping your, your toe in the water. That's toe penance. Just a little dippy, dippy, dippy. No. Get in there with the Holy Spirit. Tell him, this is, this is where I'm at. I'm struggling all the way up. My struggle is turned all the way up. Okay? Uh, let's, let's take this communion together. Jesus sits down with his disciples. It's called the Last Supper. He looks around the table and he tells them, whenever you sit down, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And the blood represents him washing away our sins. And his body represents, and the cracker, his, his body being broken for us. And so let's take that. Let's take a moment right now. Let's take that. And as you take that, I want you to take a moment of silence. Either whisper it to Jesus in your heart and mind. Tell Jesus however you got to pray. Just confess what you're going through. Just repent. Tell him. I'll teach you how. God, I repent because sometimes I give my heart way too much to the success of this church rather than to your heart and what you think needs to happen. I give my heart to a picture of what this church is supposed to be rather than your picture of what this church is supposed to be. God, sometimes I'm on, I'm on the street and my eyes are not as healthy as my eyes need to be. Would you come in and heal me? God, sometimes my, my language is so excessive. Would you heal me? It's excessive with my family. It's excessive with myself. It's excessive with my staff. Would you heal me, Jesus? I repent, Jesus. I turn to you. I need you. I want you. I want more of you. Just repent in this room. Love you, Jesus. Love you that you heal us. You love us in spite of us. We worship you, Jesus, with all of our heart because you are the God. We worship in gratitude because you are the God that, that saves us, that rescues us, that forgives us, and that resurrects us. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Can we worship in spirit and truth, church? Can we worship in spirit and truth, church?